Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, you may remember a few months back we went to a wonderful event in which the Anti-Defamation League was giving an honor to retiring Alan Slater, who worked for 30 years at the Orange County Superior Court. And we were so fortunate to be able to hear the regional director speak and introduce the Anti-Defamation League. I have been a... um, you know, contributor in the past and and think that it's a great organization. But I had the chance to hear Kevin O'Grady, and then I had a chance to call him recently, and I was so thrilled that he agreed to be on our show. For those of you who don't know him, I'll give you a little bit of background about him. Dr. Kevin O'Grady is the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League in Orange County and actually the Orange County Long Beach region. He previously served as the region's associate director. At the ADL, Dr. O'Grady oversees all programming, including civil rights, government affairs, community relations, education, and law enforcement relations. He coordinates the region's response to civil rights issues and hate crimes. He monitors extremist groups and speaks at public forums on the issues of civil rights, diversity, anti-Semitism, and education. In fact, in 2001, he was named one of Los Angeles City and County's most inspirational teachers. He's recently authored a study of gay and lesbian high school teachers and is considered a national expert in that area as well, in the area of gay and lesbian issues in education. In addition to his work with ADL, Dr. O'Grady is a member of the Center of the Orange County GLSEN, Orange County, and the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. And we recently interviewed Dr. Brian McDonald, who is the director of that. So small world. And we are so thrilled to have Kevin join us. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. Well, Kevin, why don't you tell our listeners about the mission of ADL? The uh, ADL was founded in 1913 as a reaction to 
growing anti-Semitism at the time. And we actually have a dual mission. The first is to protect the Jewish community from anti-Semitism. But our founders recognize that one doesn't protect one group and fight one type of hate without protecting all groups, and that hate really flows from the same root. So the second part, and equally important part of our mission, is to secure justice for all people, and that's where we're focused. What are some of the most important issues you deal with right here in Orange County, California? Anti-Semitism certainly is one of them. In fact, we are seeing anti-Semitic incidents and hate crimes increase. This is anything from graffitiing to religion state issues to more specific hate crimes. Um, as you mentioned earlier, we also monitor extremist groups, so that's a big part of our work given the concentration of extremist activity in Orange County. And um, we do a lot of work with law enforcement, both work related to our extremist work and then uh, work also related to counterterrorism. And, of course, we work with other community groups on issues of human relations and diversity. So why do you think there's been such a recent increase in global anti-Semitic events? Um, I think that you can look at three primary causes. Um, One certainly is the state of the economy. You know, there are these uh, centuries-old anti-Semitic canards that suggest that Jews control the economy, and every time the economy falters, Jews are targeted. It certainly didn't help that Madoff was identified as a Jewish financier in a lot of the media reports. So that has definitely fueled some of it. There's been some really horrific anti-Semitic discussion on a lot of chat groups on the Internet about that. Um, The second is the recent short war in Gaza. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of countries that are hostile to Israel who have targeted their own Jewish populations. Um, That's especially true in Latin America and particularly in Venezuela, where there's been a very sharp increase in anti-Semitic attacks. And um, finally, in Europe, where anti-Semitism has been on the increase for a number of years and has grown dramatically recently, a great deal of that has been sparked by uh, demographic changes in Europe. Um, There's been an extraordinary growth in the Muslim population there, and that's resulted in an increase in hate crimes. And also, Europe has a history of anti-Semitism and fascism, and some of that is still alive and vibrant in politics. So um, I would say the economy, Gaza, and changes in Europe really have pushed this spike in anti-Semitism. You know, people wonder that, you know, young people wonder, well, you know, why is it that Jews have been the the object of, of such hate for from you know from the dawn of time or at least from at least way back when religion you know got got into uh effect in Christianity can you explain that at all for for my listeners who are students on the campus here at the University of California if they really don't understand how this all even derived <clears throat> sure um I'll, I'll give it a shot 
I mean, the, the most obvious cause, I think, is that up until relatively recently, and I mean, we're talking the 1965 with Nostra Jews were blamed for the death of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that obviously was a massive contributing factor, and particularly when you look at uh, the persecution of medieval times. Um, the second is, I think, that Jews were also lived as a separate minority in lots of European countries, so they, because of laws of um, kashrut, that is, keeping kosher, um, Jews often lived separately. So now you have a separate community that was always blamed for the death of Jesus. And then, also in uh, early Western history, Jews were forbidden from participating in most professions. Uh, They weren't allowed to participate in any of the trades, and they weren't allowed to own land. And in fact, the two things that they were really allowed to do was to lend money and practice medicine. So you have this situation where Jews were forced into money lending because there was no other way for them to make money. And then blamed for being moneylenders and persecuted for being moneylenders. So those are some primary reasons. Obviously, it would take a long time to talk about the history of anti-Semitism. Right, right. Um, But, you know, this... this That gives an overview. Sure, sure. Yeah, and if you look at um, current surveys, ADL does a survey every year, still about 25% of the United States population continues to think that um, Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. Right. So that's a pretty heavy burden to bear. And, and they forget that Jesus himself was Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's kind of interesting. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin O'Grady, who is the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League right here in Orange County. And he is uh, terrific. He does wonderful work coordinating the region's response to civil rights issues and hate crimes. Speaking of hate crimes, um, Dr. Grady, let me let me ask you about UCI. Here I am sitting on the campus here, and I personally have seen a great deal of of the um, intense hate hate speech that has gone on. And I know the Jewish community has been upset and a lot of students, Jewish students are upset by the number of events that were staged by the Muslim Students Union at UCI. And it seems like to me that they're not, that the campus is not really working on showing how these kids really have so much in common as much as allowing the hate and the incitement to terrorism that that seems to occur in some of these gatherings. So can you tell us what, I know you've been to some of those. Why don't you talk about this? Because I've also seen it in the, um, in the new university newspaper, there's some concern. So let's tell people what's going on and what your thoughts are. Sure. Yeah. I've um, been intimately involved with this for the past five and a half years and what's going on is that the Muslim Students Union brings to campus speakers who the Jewish community and many people outside of the Jewish community really consider anti-Semitic. Um, and I'll give you some examples. Speakers who have 
demanded the end of Israel, the end of the Jewish state. Speakers who have supported Hamas and Hezbollah and suggested that attacks on Israeli civilians are justified. And then, of course, many of them throw up the old anti-Semitic myths about Jews controlling the media and the banking system and American foreign policy. But I will say one thing, and I think that this is really important in this debate, that none of these activities that the Muslim Students Union sponsors are hate crimes. Um, And in fact, while lots of people would argue differently about this, much of it doesn't rise to the level of hate incidents. Certainly, we think that the anti-Semitic speech does. Well, I I saw some of the, I wasn't at some of the events, but I saw on YouTube some of the videos, and I wouldn't say they were hate crimes, but I could see hate speech saying, you know, yeah, hate speech and, and saying things like, you know, you should be a martyr and kill yourself and kill the Jews. I mean, I actually heard that. That is incitement to terrorism. You know, that that sounded like hate speech to me. That's what I was worried about. It wasn't a hate crime. I didn't see anything actually happening in terms of a crime. But I'm worried about the student union bringing people on that would say these types of things. Well, I I think there's much to be worried about. It clearly is hate speech. Um, Now, it's important for your listeners to remember, and I know this frustrates some people, But hate speech is protected speech. Everybody has the protected right to be a racist or anti-Jewish or anti-Muslim if they so choose. Um, You know, in terms of inciting, certainly some people say that the speakers have um, approached the level of incitement. Um, It has created, as you mentioned, on campus, um, some nervousness amongst uh, lots of sections of the Jewish community. Um, Now, the administration has tried through a couple of programs, at least, to create some dialogue between the two groups. Um, I think that it's true that for quite a while the MSU wasn't interested in speaking to any of the Jewish organizations, but with a change in leadership of the MSU, that's changed somewhat, and the university created a program called Difficult Dialogues. It was involved with uh, a trip last year that took Jewish students and Muslim students to Israel uh, and parts of the um, Palestinian territories. So there is a real awareness on the part of the administration that there's a lot of tension. Our concern, the ADL's concern, and, and I think the concern of others in the Jewish community, is that while the university administration has broadly condemned anti-Semitism, the Chancellor absolutely has uh, broadly condemned anti-Semitism, that no one has spoken out specifically against these speakers who come onto the campus and engage in hate speech. Uh, And that concerns us. That's what we would like to see the university administration, uh, really in the person of the chancellor, condemn specific speakers and specific statements. And that's what they're not willing to do. Right. 
Now, getting back to that trip to Israel, I had read an article about how the kids really did relate to each other. They became friends. The Muslim kids and the Jewish kids became friends, and they, you know, traveled together and could really have um, some good camaraderie. Whatever happened after that, I, I haven't heard anything recent. Have these people become leaders to uh, collaborate together? for better communication on campus, or are you aware of anything like that? Well, I think there's been some follow-up meetings with those kids who went, but, you know, there were a lot of kids who didn't go, and a lot of kids in the MSU who are still really committed to bringing these speakers onto campus. It seems to me that there, for any of these groups, it would be helpful if there was a professor or someone who was... Um, you know, part of all the groups, whether it's the the MSU or Hillel or whomever it is, to help them to kind of steer them in the direction of cooperation and collaboration and peace instead of this incitement. You know that that's uh, that's unfortunate. Was yeah, we, and I think that's the role that the university administration has tried to play to some extent. Yeah, I I, I would like to see them do it. With regard to the First Amendment considerations, and, and you said that, you know, it, you can hate someone and you can say you hate someone, whether they're Jewish or Catholic or Muslim or whatever, you can do that. Um, but when it rises to the issue of incitement, is that, that isn't protected, is it? No, incitement to a criminal act isn't protected, but, you know, that's a... That's a very, there's a very specific legal definition for that that has to do with um, is, you know, the threat time sensitive? Is, is it legitimate? You know, you really could get up and say, you know, let's kill the Jews or, or you know, let's kill the Methodists. Um, that's a lot different from saying, let's kill the Jews. I have the guns in my car. Let's go and get them and do it now. Right, right. So, you know, just to to get up and call for the destruction of the state of Israel um, doesn't rise to that level of incitement. Right. The videos I was watching were a little bit different. They were just saying, you, you know, you should be honored to be a martyr to die, to die for what you believe in, to kill for what you believe in. To kill the Jews, you will be a martyr. You know, th- that kind of emotional outburst for young people who are very, you know, uh, I think vulnerable to this. I remember when I was in college and I was during the 60s, you know, I hate to say it, but I was on, the, I, you know, I went to the Berkeley of the Midwest, Madison, Wisconsin. And I remember getting all riled up and just being influenced so much more easily than I am now. That's what I worry about on these college campuses. What, what do you think about the college campuses versus just the, the mainstream community? Do you think that there's more of a danger there? I don't know, because certainly we've seen people in the community riled up by these statements. And so I don't know if you know college kids are more susceptible to these statements than someone 10 years older than them is. 
But, you know, what I do Maybe know they have is... more time if they're not working <laughs> and they're going to school. They have more time to do something. If you're, right. if you're trying to support your family and get food on the table, you may get excited about it, but you can't do anything. Whereas if you're a college student and in between classes or when you don't have school, maybe on an afternoon, you can take the time to do something. Yeah. I mean, what, I, what is missing from this whole topic is there's no real substantive dialogue. You know, like I said, the administration certainly has tried to engage the kids in some. You know, there are, there are real significant political and philosophic differences between the Muslim Student Union and the Jewish student community. And I'm not suggesting that sitting down and, and talking to each other is going to make those differences go away. But I do believe that in the act of dialogue comes understanding. I mean, I think that that's why that trip to Israel was really important. I don't know if anybody's mind was changed, but I do know that there was a lot more understanding from both groups and so much more willingness to just to sit down and talk about those differences. And, you know, the reality is is that when we all focus on our, our humanness and our commonness, what we're all students, we're, we're all people who have people that we love, we all have concerns, we all care about school, care about our career, care about the future, care about the world. If they would sit down and not focus on their differences, but focus on their commonality— and their concerns, that that's the way to build the bridges that I just don't see the university taking a role so far as to really making that happen, because debates only focus on differences, whereas what you're talking about, dialogue and becoming friends and engaging in activities together, that helps people to realize that we're all really human. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about the white supremacist population in Orange County. What is going on with that? Well, Orange County, unfortunately, has, if not the largest white supremacist population, certainly one of the largest. It's very difficult, obviously, to measure. Um, But I think if you take Orange County, San Bernardino, and Riverside County, you have the center for white supremacy in the nation. So all of those, you know, myths that people have about the South um, and what the South used to be like, really in many ways reflect the reality of Southern California now. And, you know, Orange County has, without a doubt, the largest white supremacist gang population. Hmm. Um, you know, the largest white supremacist gang right now is a group called Public Enemy Number 1. Um, but there are also, you know, a number of smaller groups. And Orange County also has what we call lone wolves, that is, you know, white supremacists who aren't particularly associated with one group or one gang. Um, And that's a population that's even more difficult to measure. Um, And then on top of that, Orange County also has um, a a large hate rock music publishing industry. Um, Some people may not realize that there's music that's, you know, specifically hate rock, um, who's lyrics are about white supremacist beliefs and ideology and, and, and more kind of crassly and violently just about harming minorities. Um, and that industry 
finds a home in Orange County also. And so not only are the music publishers in Orange County, but there's a club and concert scene that supports that industry um, that's pretty big in Orange County, too. There are some bars, particularly in Costa Mesa and Huntington Beach and a couple down in South County that book a lot of white supremacist bands. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, here we play indie music. We don't play any mainstream music. So believe it or not, I mean, I'm not aware, but we probably play that kind of music ourselves here. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty obvious when you hear it. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't always hear the music, but uh, but I will look out for that. So So tell me, what does it mean, at least in Orange County, to be a white supremacist? Well, in terms of ideology, it, I mean, it means what it would mean anywhere, adhering to uh, an ideology that believes that um, white should be the dominant race, that any other race is inferior, and kind of the more one moves away from like kind of looking stereotypically white, the more mongrel one is, the more one is tainted, the more one should be targeted. I mean, it's, you know, I think if you, um, if you switched white supremacists for neo-Nazi, it might give people, you know, a, a better understanding. Right. So uh, anyone, you know, I mean, does, does white supremacist mean that you should be white, straight, Christian. I mean, that's yes. what I was saying. Okay, and and you, yes. you're not. You better not be Jewish. You better not be gay. You you better not be Hispanic. You better not be black. You better not but, be Catholic. You better not be Asian. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So and, I mean, do you, should fact, you there are, there should are, you also be Christian? I mean, that's a, not a very Christian thing to do. But should you also be Christian too if you're white supremacist? Um, well, not that you would have to go to church every week. But it's actually. Um, interesting, there's an offshoot of white supremacy called the Christian Identity Movement, and they really do believe that whites are God's chosen people, mm. um, and they do hold to uh, a obviously perversion of Christianity that teaches them that um, as white people, they're the chosen people, and it's their mission to rid the world of you know, any other minority. Wow. So there, there's hate against anyone, in Asian, everybody yeah. who's not. Yeah. yeah. So, so why is it that Orange County has a significant white supremacist population? I, I don't quite get it. Um, Orange County actually has a long history of uh, extremism, um, dating back to at least the 30s and 40s of the Klan, uh, was probably the major political force in what was at that time the main part of Orange County. Uh, Orange, Santa Ana, uh, Anaheim was controlled by the Klan. Ku Klux Klan, right? Yes, oh Klux my goodness! Klan. Wow. Just, just like you understand them in the white robes and the burning crosses. And, wow. Um, they uh, were dominant in politics, electoral politics and local governments and city councils. And When was this? This was what? The early uh, that was probably the late 20s into the 30s, hmm. kind of tapered out during the 30s. And then after World War II, with the growth of the John Birch Society, um, they kind of picked up that extremist tradition in Orange County. 
Um, and then while that waned in the 70s, that mantle gun got picked up by these extremist groups that we're talking about today. You know, Orange County has also been um, traditionally a very conservative area, and it's been an area where demographics have changed rapidly. So often when you see demographics change and more minority populations, you tend to see a rise in white supremacy. So that's another factor. Now, let me ask you something. Are there white supremacists here on the campus at UCI that you know of? Is there any? We've alarm? never had reports of white supremacy okay. on the campus there. I mean, because we're such a diverse campus. You you walk down, you know, and I teach here yeah. part-time, so I get to see every beautiful color and and <laughs> and size that there is. And so, you know, there is there is a lot of diversity on this campus. And so I was just one. I haven't seen anybody that looked like a white supremacist. And do do you do you believe that this has anything to do with education? Are are when you look at the population of the white supremacists, are they educated people, or you know what? Where do I, they? I would say your run of the mill kind of white supremacist gang member lone wolf. No, isn't educated, right. but. There is actually um, a core group of people who would consider themselves white supremacist intellectuals, and I can give you a couple of examples from our area again. Um, there's a, a group called the Institute for Historical Review, right. and the Institute for Historical Review is probably, although they're waning somewhat, the largest historical, I mean, Holocaust denial group, at least in the country. And they really fashion themselves as academics. Um, And they publish, and if you look at their publications, they often look like academic journals, and they have conferences, and they bring together people who have PhDs. So they certainly are educated. Um... There's another, there's a professor up at Cal State Long Beach, a tenured professor, his name's Kevin McDonald, um, who is an anti-Semitic intellectual. You know, all, we would argue, ADL argues, that all of his writings are are very anti-Semitic. He, his essential argument is that Jews have attached themselves to stronger communities and kind of sap the strength of those communities to advance their own agenda. Um, and this is a guy who's a, he's a tenured professor, so the university can't do anything to get rid of him. Uh, he teaches classes in psychology. Hmm. So, well, yeah, I mean, like I said, amongst the general white supremacist population, I wouldn't say it's an educated population. There is a core within that who see their pursuit of the white supremacist agenda as an intellectual agenda. You know, in the same way that Hitler used academics to legitimize his campaign against minorities. Right, right. So do we see a a huge amount of white supremacists in the jails? I mean, I've I've heard of that problem. I'm, I'm a sheriff reserve here in Orange County, and I've I've heard some of the concerns that they have about white supremacists in our county jails. Yeah, 
I mean, there's a significant white supremacist population in the county jails. There's also, you know, there's a significant white supremacist population on probation, so they're monitored by the probation department. Um, I mean, you know, law enforcement has an exceptional handle on the white supremacist population, where it is, where they hang out, their activities, who they are. I, I would hate to leave the impression that this is white supremacist population running amok. Um, law enforcement um, and the parole and probation departments are really are on top of this in Orange County. So what can we do to bring these white supremacists into the fold where they are more accepting? I mean, is that, I mean, is that pie in the sky? I mean, what's being done? What are you guys doing? Um, you know, I don't think it's pie in the sky. You know, it's uh, actually one of my personal most passionate beliefs uh, and the belief of the ADL. We fundamentally believe that if children can be taught to hate, they can be taught to respect. You know, I joke sometimes that no child comes out of the womb wearing a Klan robe. White supremacist ideology, uh, racism, bigotry is taught. So it can be untaught. You know, you can teach respect for individual difference. You can teach kids to appreciate differences. Unfortunately, we're we're in an era where there's less and less funding for, you know, diversity education and human relations education, and it's again at a time when hate crime statistics, not just in the Jewish community but in almost every community, are increasing. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin O'Grady, who's the regional director of the Anti Defamation League here in Orange County and the Long Beach region. And he has done tremendous work uh, with response to civil rights issues, hate crimes. He monitors extremist groups, speaks at public forums, tries to work on this, and he obviously is passionate about it. So is it, is it education that, that's needed when you, when you raise a child that is anti-Semitic or is a white supremacist, and they come to the schools. I mean, is there even any possibility that the schools can override this brainwashing that they get at home? Oh, I truly believe that they can. The schools play an extraordinarily vital role here. Um, you know, research shows that preschool kids, kids as early as three and four, maybe even two, begin to recognize and act upon differences, you know, based on skin color, that's probably one of the most obvious things they can see, and that if they're raised in a home that teaches them to respect those differences, then they will, and if obviously the message at home is completely different, then they begin to develop their own prejudices. Uh, So we developed a program for preschool kids, a diversity program for preschool kids. It's actually for preschool teachers and caretakers that we did in conjunction with Sesame Street that helps to address these differences. Um, You know, we have great diversity programs. Orange County Human Relations has great diversity programs. Um, CCEJ up in uh, Long Beach has these programs. So, 
you know, they're definitely there, and there are amazing people who are ready to go out and work in schools. Again, the difficulty is schools identifying the funding and finding the time to do it. Right. What about the, um, well, I just wanted to ask you one more thing. What What is the most often targeted, what populations are most often targeted in hate crimes in our in our county here? The African-American community. Mm. Uh, every year, and, and what's particularly alarming about that statistic, especially in Orange County, is that the African-American community in Orange County is tiny, relatively. It's about... 1.8% of the population. Right. So you have this really small population that is targeted at higher levels than any other population. So what is being done about that? You know, law enforcement is obviously aware of the, the problem. Um, there are reporting agencies that do a lot of outreach to victims. Um, again, we hope the education piece um, takes care of some of it, but, you know, it's a, it's a battle. Yes. It's a battle, and, and we're fighting it. I'm wondering if there's any difference now that we have an Afro-American president. I, I think that was, um, at least for the African-American community, I think it was a boost for them to feel that times have changed and that there is equality I'm wondering, do you think that there's been any difference? Uh, I do. It's a, it's a very complex question. You know, the, obviously the election of uh, the first black president sends an incredibly powerful signal, not just to the black and African-American community, but to all communities. Right. Um, however, I think we have to be careful when we here suggested that the election of Barack Obama and his appointment of the first black attorney general means that we're now in um, this kind of post-racial era, um, especially if what that means is that race doesn't make any difference anymore. Because, you know, look at the figures we just suggested. African-Americans sure. are targeted at incredibly high levels, specifically because... They're African Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, our young black men in LA County have a much higher chance of going to jail than they do, you know, attending college. If you look at rates of poverty amongst racial minority communities, they're much higher. The achievement gap in schools between white students and minority students is remains significant. If you look at, you know, the leadership of American corporations, it remains about 90% white male. So to suggest that race has no meaning anymore in America because we have a black president, um, I think is... Yeah, um, that's an overstatement. It's, it's potentially yeah. a, a dangerous statement because sure. it encourages us to ignore the realities that, that race is a vital issue in America, and it has significant consequences. And the, the, there has to be an ongoing conversation about race and racism in America, and there's, you know, there's huge amounts of work to be done still. Right, right. But it's a step in the right direction, at oh. least, that there's something would, like that would happen. Absolutely. Let, let's talk about that federal hate crimes bill. Tell us about it, and why has it been that there's been a 
you know, it hasn't happened for 10 years. So tell us about what it says in there. Sure. Um, let me take one step back, if I can. Sure. There, lots of states have their own hate crimes bills. Um, and a hate crime bill provides for additional punishment if somebody, if a perpetrator attacks somebody because um, of their race, their religion, their gender, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation, uh, their level of disability. Those are the protected classes in California. Right. And California has a very strong hate crimes law. Right. Um, there has never been a federal hate crimes law because the legislation as it's written includes sexual orientation as a protected class. And there's and, still discrimination at the federal level. Yeah. Yeah. So at least during the Bush administration, um, even though most of the time, depending on the legislative makeup, there were the votes to pass the bill, um, President Bush always said that he would veto the bill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we hope that with a Congress willing to pass the legislation and a president who has said that has signed the legislation, that we'll finally have uh, a federal hate crimes bill um, that will protect people who are victims of federal crimes. Right. You know. uh-huh. Again, most people are victims of, or most people who commit uh, hate crimes are breaking state laws. Right. So, you know, in California, again, is um, we're fortunate because we have strong protection, but certainly uh, an additional federal hate crimes law would be fantastic because in states where hate crime laws don't exist, there are ways in which a federal law could, you know, kind of step in and perpetrators could be punished for hate crimes. Right. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin O'Grady, who is the Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League here in Orange County and the uh, the Long Beach region. And he does tremendous work, including civil rights issues. He deals with government affairs, community relations, education, and he works with law enforcement as well. How exactly do you work with law enforcement? Um. Two primary ways. The first is that I said earlier that we monitor extremist groups. So all of the information that we collect on extremist groups, we share with law enforcement agencies um, and are sometimes able to provide for them information that they haven't gathered themselves. So that's a big piece of the work that we do. Um, a second equally important piece is both ADL at the national level and locally we provide a very significant amount of counterterrorism training. Um, over the past three or four years, we have uh, run workshops for law enforcement on issues such as um, terrorist use of the Internet. Um, we brought out the bioterrorism director from the Center for Disease Control uh, late last year, and he taught some law enforcement groups about the threat of bioterrorism. Uh, we frequently bring out uh, Israeli terrorist experts. We're actually going to be doing it in May um, to work with local
local law enforcement on increasing their ability to uh, counter domestic and international terrorist threats. Um, at the national level, all FBI agents go through uh, an Anti-Defamation League program at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, and we also run a program called the Advanced Training Seminar, which is uh, a national program for people at the police chief level. Um, and that is they go to Washington, D.C., and to the FBI Academy, and that's a week-long intensive study of domestic terrorism and the threats of domestic terrorism. Wow, that that's terrific. How do you... Get and we your... don't charge for any of that. All of that we yeah. provide to law enforcement because that's our mission. Right. How do you get your funding? Uh, well, that's a great segue. Uh, we <laughs> get our funding from... Um, Almost exclusively individual donors. Yeah. And um, well, that's why I support you guys. <laughs> and we appreciate it. And, and you've, you know, you've heard the the broad scope of the work that we do. And you know, it obviously takes money to do that work. And you're nonprofit, so and it's tax deductible. And, um, <laughs> so we absolutely rely on individual support. And of course, in this economy. It's tough. You know, it's tough. It's tough for all nonprofits. Right, right. But those who receive the benefit of it should really be helping to support it, and which is all of us. Yes. So tell me, um, h- how do you get involved in religious, religion state issues? Can you give us some examples how you do that? Sure. Um, people call us and ask us to be involved. Um, I think sometimes when people think about civil rights groups, they think that we go around looking for issues and problems that we can jump on. Um, we don't get involved actually with any issue until someone calls our office, explains the situation, and asks us if we would be willing to get involved. Um, and I'll give you two or three quick examples. We got a phone call last year. This was from Long Beach. Um, a third grader's mom called and said, her son was coming home every day and complaining that he was getting cold at school, and she thought that was kind of weird. And so she asked him why, what was going on, and it turns out that his teacher was teaching um, Christmas, but was actually teaching the, the religious story of Christmas, um, essentially doing religious instruction in her classroom, and he was the only non-Christian kid in that classroom. And again, this is a public school. So she just had him go outside every day and sit at a picnic bench. Mm. Um, so that was one example. Um, so we, what did you guys do? I mean, Well, you know, I mean, that was so obviously wrong. Yeah. Um, that actually we just, a phone call to the principal took care of that. Oh, that's good. Um, We were involved in an issue three or four years ago now. Uh, An area high school was having its graduation ceremony at one of the mega churches in Orange County. And they had chosen to move their graduation from, I think, their football stadium to this church for for what seemed to be reasonable... um, reasons. There was lots more 
parking. There was lots more seating in the auditorium. Um, but the graduating class was going to be seated on the altar, un- sitting directly under a 20-foot cross. I mean, this cross was huge. Mm. Um, and so there was really there was no way to look at that graduation event and not to come away with the impression that the school district somehow supported or advocated Christianity. And in that case, we worked with the school district to move their graduation ceremony, which they did. You know, a lot of times we find that teachers just aren't aware of what the line is, and so they cross it inadvertently. So a lot of what we do is education for teachers. And then there are some more extraordinary circumstances. We dealt with an issue where a biology teacher told a non-Christian student that if he didn't accept Jesus, uh, he would burn in hell. Mm. Um, Another incident where an English teacher had uh, a cross hanging on the wall behind their desk, and a non-Christian student complained, and the teacher yelled at this kid in class and and made an issue of it and refused to remove the cross um, until we got involved. So some are inadvertent, some are are not inadvertent, Um, and those are a lot of the phone calls that we get. In Orange County, they have a lot to do with what happens in schools. And then around the Christmas time, we get phone calls about... um, religious displays on public land, um, and we try to mediate those if we can. Um, I just would point out that the Anti-Defamation League doesn't initiate lawsuits. We really try to play a mediation role when we can. And and if that doesn't work, and if people want to pursue uh, legal action, then, then we step out of it. We don't see that as our role. And then you refer them on to legal counsel or somebody else who if, might want to take it. If they ask, yeah. we will. We have some lawyers we refer to, yeah. Right. I remember years ago I sat on uh, the school board for Saddleback Valley Unified School District, and mm-hmm. that was in the early 80s. And uh, at that time, it was interesting because my board wanted to have prayer in the classroom. <laughs> And that was a huge issue because I was the only one on the board who said, wait a minute. And at that time, I had not yet gone back to law school, which I, that was one of the reasons I did go back to law school is after my stint as a member of the school board. And I saw what was all the crazy things that were going on. But that became a, a huge issue. And it wasn't the teachers. It was the board that wanted to do that. Yeah, actually, <laughs> um, school board politics kind of uh, can be kind of crazy and interesting. And yeah. and unfortunately, people who can be most affected by school board decisions because they have kids in school don't pay much attention to school board elections. And, and I think there's a great example at Capistrano Unified right now mm-hmm. where you have uh, a school board who some members at least have said that they're interested in running the district uh, along biblical principles. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you know, we're, so that's a district that that we're obviously watching. There's a lot of concern 
in the community, and um, we and that's make what sure Saddleback that was like. We had a we had a minister on our board, and we had uh, ver- people who were uh, very much into, you know, born again, and felt that that was their job. They felt really that it was a calling for them to bring religion into the classroom. That's the board I sat on. So I remember that very much yeah, and what that was it's like. It's not atypical in southern Orange County. And like I said, it's a, it's a real issue in the Capistrano district right now. Right. So ADL believes in the separation of religion and state. And, and why, you know, some people say to me, if I would say something to them about that, well, you know what? If we have religion in the school, we're going to have kids who are, they have better morals. So why is it so important if we want to teach morality and we want to teach being a good citizen, um, why is it so important to separate church and state? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. And, you know, I would say, first of all, that you can teach morality without teaching religion. Yes. Um, But... I think one of the most significant reasons, and one of the reasons that gets overlooked or ignored in this discussion, is that we believe that religion and state should be separated to protect religion. Exactly. Um, That when government begins to intrude on religious practice, then there are very serious concerns. And, and, you know, all you have to do is look at the country's... um, where the government does have an official religion and does impose Iran religion on other people. Yeah. Sure. I'll actually give you um, a, a kind of personal and much less uh, horrific example than Iran. I grew up in England, and the um, Anglican Church remains the official church of England. Um, and when I went to school, we had... In middle school, we had religious services every day, and in high school, we had religious services three times a week. And you had to attend, regardless of your religion. Right. And so that's, I think, a great example of what can happen when the state gets really involved in religion. When the government stays out of religion, in places like America, we see religious practice flourish. I mean... There's probably more diversity of religious practice in America than almost any other country. You know, some countries have higher rates of church attendance, but America really has a massive diversity of religious practice. And And we have the freedom to do it. Absolutely. Or or the freedom not to do it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the second is that we don't think the state has any role in mandating religious practice or advancing a religion. But neither should the state be involved in diminishing religion. Um, And, you know, one of the things when I talk to groups about religion and state, because I certainly understand that it's a controversial issue, is that it's actually important to remember that school kids have quite a bit of freedom when it comes to religious practice in, you know, in school. There's, if kids want to gather together and pray at lunchtime, they're absolutely protected in doing it. Both their freedom of speech protects them and their you know, practice of religion under the First Amendment. So there's, there's a double protection 
for kids who want to do that. The, the restrictions are on the teachers and the administration and the school board because they are agents of the state. But kids can pray. Kids can even preach if they're not disrupting, you know, the flow of the school day. Right. So students actually have probably more religious rights than most people realize. You know, we don't have a lot of time, but I did want to talk about the that the ADL supports equal rights for gay and lesbian couples as well. And we've had several people on when we when Prop Eight passed, and you know when the uh, Supreme Court came out with its decision. And what is the ADL doing now with regard to gay rights? Well, we believe fundamentally in the equality of all people, and so that includes gay and lesbian citizens, and we, or gay and lesbian people generally, and we don't think that anybody should live with any less rights than another person. Specifically around Prop 8, we oppose Prop 8. Um, we do, <clears throat> ADL does have a policy that supports same-sex marriage. And I think, it, you know, what I would like to emphasize is that our support, and in fact, the way the, the law is written, is it's equality of civil marriage. You know, there's been a lot of charges that if Prop 8 passes, the churches will be forced to do gay marriage. I mean, that's a real falsity that was propagated during the campaign. Right. Um, that just absolutely isn't the truth. No church would ever have to marry. No church has to marry anybody it doesn't want to. Exactly. You know, and it, churches. You have churches to get a have, state license, so it's a it's a civil union anyway. Exactly, and and some states have been do. I mean, some churches have been doing gay marriages for years. Some have done it recently, and some won't do it and say they'll never do it. That's absolutely their right to do that. But this is an issue of civil protection and civil rights, and nobody should be denied rights. Nobody should be forced to live as a second-class citizen. You know, it isn't just marriage rights. In um, about two-thirds of the state, you can be fired simply because you're gay or lesbian, or you can lose housing in about 20 states simply because you're gay and lesbian. Hmm. So there, there are a range of issues in California. We've obviously have been focused on marriage lately. Well, we will see what happens, won't we, very soon. And we want people to be directed to your website at adl.org. And we thank you so much, Kevin Grady. You are an inspiration, and we really support all the wonderful work that you do. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Okay. You, yes, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on Privacy Piracy. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what you want to know about, about privacy in the information age. Thank you and good night. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.
Yeah, the dirt on publishing, writers, authors, all of it.